Well, hello, podcasters, and welcome to a half-term special uh, uh, winter podcast, episode number 38 of the Banking Litigation Podcast. I am uh, co-hosting, as ever, with my co-host, Kerry. Hello, Kerry. Hi, John. Hello, listeners. And uh, we're joined today by um, Banking Litigation superstar, Harriet Tolkien. Hello, Harriet. Hello, John. Right, uh, to get us off to a flying start today, we've some groundbreaking news from the realm of cryptocurrency litigation, and in particular, the Court of Appeal decision in Tulip Trading Limited and Vladimir van der Laan and others. Oh, yeah, the talk of the crypto town. Do you know, I was just Googling to see mm. if there's a special word for town in the metaverse so that I could kind of incorporate some really good knowledge of such things. Apparently, there's not. It's just still called a town. Anyway, I believe it's the latest development in a long line of authorities involving Dr. Craig Wright, uh, who claims to be the creator of Bitcoin. Bitcoin, is that right, John? Yes, that's absolutely right, Kerry. And for anyone who's not up to speed, the facts of this case were that Dr. Wright's company, TIL, which claimed to own Bitcoin, lost access to Bitcoin when Dr. Wright's computer was hacked and secure private keys were stolen. And TIL's primary uh, primary claim is that the defendants, who are Bitcoin software developers, would have fiduciary duty to TIL to enable it uh, to reaccess the Bitcoin. And what did the Court of Appeal decide, John? Well, it's important to remember this is just an interlocutory uh, decision, but it allowed uh, the appeal. It said that there was a realistic argument that Bitcoin developers, while acting as developers, owe fiduciary duties to the owners of that property, which could include taking active steps to uh, introduce code so that an owner's, uh, an individual owner's Bitcoin can be transferred to safety. Now, the two crucial words there are realistic argument. Don't forget, listeners, that as John said, this was only an interlocutory decision. The effect of the judgment was not to decide whether such a duty exists, but to establish that it is a serious issue which needs to be determined at trial. Yeah, that's important, Harriet. So good we've said it twice. And it will certainly be interesting to see how the case plays out once the relevant facts are established. Uh, and notably, if a duty is found to exist, uh, in the words of Lord Justice Burst, this will involve, I'm quoting here, a significant development of the common law on fiduciary duties. Yeah, I think it's actually quite interesting to think about the impact and expansion in the law of fiduciary duties could have outside of the crypto context, particularly for our financial services clients. So if that's a point that you'd like to delve into in more detail, then please do get in touch with one of us. Yes, and thank you, Kerry. And if any of our listeners would like to know more, there is, as ever, a link in our blog post uh, to the show notes. Um, but moving on, uh, I think, Harriet, you have an interesting case um, for us on Braganza discretions, is that right? Yes, always a hot topic for banks, given that they are often in the position of decision maker and need to understand what standard they will be held to in exercising that power. Uh, and the case I'm going to look at today, John, is Sibner Capital Limited and Jarvis. There have been quite a few recent cases considering the exercise of contractual discretions in a financial services context. So before we continue with the case, Harriet, can you give our listeners a bit of a refresher on contractual discretions and rights? Yes, absolutely, Kerry. The distinction between contractual rights and contractual discretions is not always straightforward to draw. A contractual right gives a party a unilateral ability to act in a particular way and make a binary decision whereas a contractual discretion generally involves a party making an assessment or choosing from a range of options. And I suppose ultimately it depends on the words of the contract and the context. Precisely. 
if a clause is properly construed as a discretion rather than an absolute contractual right, then the party is probably not going to have complete freedom to act as it chooses. It will need to meet a certain standard in exercising the discretion. Now, there may be an express standard in a contract, for example, that the discretion must be exercised in a manner that's commercially reasonable. However, if the contract is silent, the discretion may be amenable to a braganza implied term. So, sorry to jump in again, but just to make sure our listeners are with us on this one, can you explain what we mean by the braganza duty? Of course. So if the braganza duty is implied, then the decision maker must act in good faith and refrain from acting in a way which is arbitrary, capricious or irrational. Um, and you may recognise this formulation from the traditional public law standard um, which has been imported into the commercial into commercial contracts in cases such as Braganza and BP shipping, uh, from which the duty gets its name. The helpful context, Harriet, <clears throat> but what do the courts say in Sipner Capital? So, returning to the case at mm. hand, uh, I will very briefly explain the factual background. Following a borrower's default under a loan facility, statutory demands were made against two guarantors. Now, those statutory demands were set aside by a district judge, and so the lender appealed to the High Court. The decision in question was the outcome of that appeal to the High Court, which focused on the lender's decision not to accept payment of less than the full amount owed on the due date, and specifically whether the lender's decision-making power was or was not subject to the Braganza duty. Now, the Court was satisfied that there was no realistic prospect of the guarantors establishing that the lender was under some sort of duty of good faith or other Braganza-style duty, in deciding whether or not to accept the lesser payment. Now, notably, the relevant clause in the facility agreement contained no qualification. The court went out of its way to say that the lender had an absolute right whether or not to accept less than it was entitled to. To sum up, the key point coming out of this case is that a financial institution's exercise of its discretion or right will not necessarily be subject to the implied Braganza duty. This is particularly so where the documentation confers an absolute contractual right in its favour. Well, thank you, Harriet. Ultimately, these findings led the court, of course, to find in favour of the lender and allow the appeal. But if you'd like to read more detail about the decision, uh, there's a link, as ever, in our blog post in the show notes. But over to you, Kerry, for some exciting Quince Care developments. Thanks, John. Yes, today I have for our listeners a case which has equally um, been the light of my life and the bane of my existence for three years. Um, oh, I say that, I'm talking about Quince Care, obviously, and I say that, but actually it's mainly been the light of my life. I really enjoy Quince Care case, as our regular listeners will know. Um, and for uh, anyone in financial services, I'm sure this will uh, make your ears prick. It's Stanford International Bank and HSBC. Kerry, I can't wait for a summary, but could you give us a quick high-level outline of the facts, please? Sure can, John. The Supreme Court has upheld the Court of Appeals' decision to strike out a claim brought by the liquidators of Stamford International Bank. And now that bank was running a Ponzi scheme and the claim was against its correspondent bank. The claimant liquidators argued that the bank breached its so-called quince care duty to take sufficient care that the monies paid out from the accounts under its control were being paid out properly. In particular, the claimant said that the bank should have recognised various red flags and stopped processing its customers' payments, thereby exposing the fraud long before the accounts were eventually frozen. 
I believe this is only the second ever case considering the Quince Care duty to reach the Supreme Court. Is that right, Kerry? Mm. That is right, Harriet. John's very excited about mm. this. Um, but it's important to bear in mind that this decision did not consider the scope of the Quince Care duty expressly. The court proceeded on the assumption that the bank owed and breached the duty to enable it to consider HSBC's application for strikeout summary judgment. The focus of the appeal on whether that assumed breach gave rise to any recoverable loss suffered by the claimant. To this, the court said that there was no loss that had been suffered and kicked out the claim. I see. The decision certainly highlights that the court will consider the question of whether any pecuniary loss has been suffered in such cases with a critical eye. So what are the interesting quince care developments that have come out of this case? Well, the decision demonstrates that the court is prepared to deal with quince care claims on a summary basis where appropriate, in contrast with some other recent unsuccessful applications. The judgment also places heavy emphasis on retaining the narrow boundaries of the quince care duty so that it does not unduly interfere with commercial certainty and the ability of a bank to act upon the payment instructions given to it by its customer promptly and without fear. Funny, you you mentioned some other uh, recent unsuccessful applications. Do correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one of the cases you're referring to uh, is the other equally hot Quinscare case at the moment, uh, Philip and Barclays Bank. Yeah, no need to correct you, John. You are spot on. And it's about to become the third case to reach the Supreme Court on Quinscare. Notably, this appeal will give the Supreme Court an opportunity to evaluate the Quinscare duty properly. So I dare say we're about to receive an outcome that could drastically change our understanding of Quinscare entirely. Uh, well, two points. Uh, obviously, it's, it's all very exciting. Um, the first is that uh, the Philip and Barclays hearing took place during the first week of February. So keep an eye out, podcasters, for our blog post on that uh, once the judgment is is handed down. The second, classical Greek. Do you know what Philip means in classical Greek, Kerry? I I don't, John. He who likes horses. It's good. Good Yeah. Anyway. Did you do a pub quiz last night? No, I didn't. I just uh, applied my classical Greek. Anyway. On the topic of acquiring information and improving your general knowledge, um, if you fancy a deep dive into Stanford and HSBC, once again, there is a link um, in the show notes. So now before the final curtains close, I'll hand back over to you, John, to wrap up with a pair of cases on breaches of embargo on draft judgments. Thank you, Kerry. Yes, uh, over the last year, the um, judiciary has begun to crack down on embargo breaches with a number of decisions which have certainly made the profession sit up and take notice. Harry, do you want to give us an overview of what an embargo actually is? But of course, John. Thank you. Providing a judgment under embargo is the practice of a court providing a copy of a judgment to the parties and their legal representatives a few days in advance of a reserved judgment being handed down. The judgment under embargo is provided under strict confidential terms that neither the draft judgment nor its substance is to be disclosed to any other person or made public in any way. The terms will also state that a breach of any of these obligations may be treated as contempt of court. So what are the two new embargo cases all about, John? Uh, Yeah, well, the first one we have is Interdigital Technology Corporation and Lenovo Group Limited. And in this case, the court circulated the draft judgment uh, to the party's counsel in the usual way, as as Harriet said. Now, Interdigital solicitors forwarded the judgment to key contacts at the client, Interdigital, highlighting in the email that the, um, the, the strict confidential terms of the embargo. So far, so good. 
One of the recipients, however, the Deputy GC, disclosed the case's outcome via email to Interdigital's foreign solicitors for lawyers in the US, not realising that he was breaching the embargo, because he viewed the US firm as co-counsel as they were involved in the global dispute. Now, Interdigital's UK solicitors became aware of this and immediately investigated and brought the matter to the court's attention. And a letter from the uh, Deputy GC accepting responsibility and apologising was put in evidence before the court. So I'm sure many of our listeners will empathise with the Deputy GC here. Uh, well, yes, indeed. Look, it, it was unfortunate, but the court held that a disclosure of the judgment um, or the outcome to foreign lawyers, even though uh, they had been involved to some extent in the proceedings, was indeed a breach of the embargo. But, um, as full responsibility had been accepted, the disclosures were relatively limited and there was no public uh, disclosure, the court considered that further contempt proceedings would be disproportionate uh, to any need to uphold the court's authority. I see. An important reminder. Mm. I think it's also worth knowing that if there is uncertainty as to who can be sent a draft judgment, you can apply to the court under paragraph 2.7 of Practice Direction 40E for clarification from the judge. John, have there been any cases involving non-lawyers breaching an embargo? It's funny you ask that, Harriet. That takes me on to my second case. Uh, Most recent cases have involved lawyers, but my second case for our podcast today actually involves a client facing contempt proceedings, and it's Wright and McCormack. That's not the same right you mentioned in the earlier cryptocurrency case, surely? Lo and behold, Harriet, I believe it is. Dr Wright has basically been sleeping at the door of the court, by the looks of things. Now, in this case, uh, the defendant tweeted that Dr. Wright's claims that he is uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, forgive my pronunciation, please, podcasters, the inventor of Bitcoin, that those claims were fraudulent. Although Dr. Wright's libel claim was established, he only received one pound in nominal damages because the judge found that he had advanced a deliberately false case until shortly before trial. Now, Dr. Wright received the judgment under embargo, along with the usual confidential terms. But subsequently, he uh, posted three cryptic messages on Slack, which I understand is a messaging platform, alluding to the fact that he had been uh, ultimately successful in his claim, uh, notwithstanding the nominal judgment uh, damages. He also replied to an email from his solicitors, which contained a summary of the judgment, copying at least uh, five other people uh, who should not have been privy to the summary. And what's notable about the case is that the court, on its own initiative, uh, issued consent, uh, contempt proceedings against Dr Wright for breaching the embargo. Mr Justice Chamberlain considered that there was a real prospect that the court might find that by posting those messages, Dr Wright was disclosing and intending to disclose the substance of the judgment contrary to the terms of the embargo which had been explained to him. Well, this case certainly highlights how important it is to be cautious in making any communications relating to a proceedings if you've been provided with a ju- draft judgment under embargo whether you're the client, in-house counsel, or a law firm. Yes, well, it'll be interesting to see what happens next, especially because in the interdigital case we just spoke about, the court made some obiter comments that strict liability may apply to breach of the embargo, so there may be contempt even where there had been no intention uh, to flout the embargo. And there'll be a series, as as I said earlier on, of, of decisions on this recently, so it is something that the court is clamping down upon. Yeah, and on this case in particular, it's not looking all right for Dr. Wright. Mm, uh, anyway, listeners, there are links in the show notes to both of our blog posts on those cases. Yes, and that brings us to the end of uh, this uh, half-term uh, uh, podcast, podcasters. Uh, how nice to see you all again. And uh, our thanks to Kerry for um, co-hosting. 
and to Harriet for being our guest uh, speaker um, on today's episode. Uh, do have a look at the show notes. Thank you very much all and we'll see you soon.